First Peter chapter five, verses six and seven, our sermon text, the, the outline you've got there, pages 10 and 11 in your worship guide. As you have your copy of the scriptures open, this is a book that I, I know I've mentioned a few times. I've heard Chris mention in, in the pulpit a few times, so you may have heard of it. It's a book from 2007 by an author named Jerry Bridges, and it's got a pretty provocative title, Respectable Sins. When you hear people talk about sin in church or in a pulpit, you, you don't hear them respect it, right? You don't hear them talk about respectable sins. But Bridges wrote this book called Respectable Sins, the subtitle, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. He said, the motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals, us, may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we've lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. And so among the respectable sins that he deals with, ingratitude, thanklessness, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, judgmentalism, lack of self-control, envy. But second on that list, coming in like the opening range of chapters just behind ungodliness, the second thing that he deals with anxiety and frustration. Bridges wrote that he surveyed the entire New Testament looking for Christian character traits. He reads all of the Bible just intentionally in the New Testament, just just looking, okay, what are the characteristics of a Christian? What should we be like? And he says the first of that list, can you imagine what it might be, the character trait of a Christian? Four-letter word, starts with L, ends with E, love, right? So 50 Plus, or somewhere around 50 times, he says, we see the precept or the command, the example or the instruction, love. Second in that list was humility. He says that was around 40 times. Love, humility, but then he wrote, what really, this is me quoting Bridges, what really surprised me is that third was trust in God in all circumstances. So the top three, love, Humility, trust in God. And if you were to combine or add in humility and trust in God as one package, they would actually barely creep over and, and, and beat out love for the number one spot. So what I want to do this morning as we look at First Peter chapter 5, these, these two verses in 6 and 7, is to see the connection between those two. What does this command to humility have to do with my, my trust in God in all circumstances. I, w- I want us to see how this commanded posture of being humble is really fueled by this command that we can and should trust God no matter what's going on. Anxiety, Bridges says in that chapter, is a, is a problem we like to dress up. Anxiety is something we like to church up a little bit, put in nicer clothes. I'm just concerned just a little worried about this. I'm just under a lot of stress. I'm uneasy. I'm uncertain. I'm fearful of the outcome. I'm fretting. I'm restless. I'm dreading or I'm bothered. I'm tense or I'm nervous. And Bridges says, I think helpfully um, anxiety is really a sign of something else going on in our Anxiety is a sign of this 
deep down kind of battle for control, this desire that we would be in charge. And so when a situation comes, like a, like a dear friend has a health crisis, we realize I'm, I'm, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of their body. I'm not in charge of their healing. I'm not in charge of their blood flow. I can't do anything to stop a stroke from happening. I'm not in the master's chair. And so our gut reaction to that is what? It's, oh, it's fear, it's anxiety, it's worry, it's, 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 it's dreading, it's, it's stress, it's, it's being frustrated that we can't do more, that we can't command the world, that we can't command the inhabitants of the world and, and to make the goings-on of the world to, to do as we see fit. But I, I, I want to be careful because life in a fallen world is a life with real problems, Right? with health problems, with financial problems, with all kinds of stuff and stress that we face. And the Bible isn't ignorant of that. The Bible is, is not saying, you've got nothing to worry about. Just stop. The Bible isn't ignorant of the real stuff that we face. This command to humility and trust isn't delivered in a context where everything is okay. I want you to see that. You, you think about the book of 1 Peter as a whole, and I'll give you just a brief sketch right here. This, this command is delivered to people who are suffering, to people whose lives are in danger, to people who know persecution in ways that you and I can't imagine persecution, to people who know uncertainty and the threat of death in ways that you and I don't know uncertainty and the threat of death. Working backwards for just a moment, if you've got your Bible open, you can look at these. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to meet you, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I'm working backwards on purpose. But chapter 4, verse 12, he says, hey, it's going to be difficult. That shouldn't surprise you. Shouldn't catch you off guard that life is hard. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then there's this phrase, catch this. He says, okay, if, if you sin and you're beaten, obviously you should face consequences. But if you do good and you face consequences, he says, for to this you have been called. Little phrase in chapter 2, verse 20 into 21, for to this, to what? To suffering. To heartache. To, to causes of anxiety you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Your life is a call to suffering, he says. Lastly, the very beginning of the book, Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says by the Spirit, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that the Bible eagerly acknowledges your life is going to be difficult and you are going to suffer. And the Bible gladly commands you should humbly trust God in every circumstance. You see those two twin realities that we don't usually connect? God's saying your life is going to be a life of uncertain suffering. And trust me, 
and believe me. And this is what Peter does for the church that he's writing to as they're facing threat and persecution and hardship. He tells them about a mighty hand and about a mighty care that welcomes us to humble ourselves, to make ourselves low before the Lord, and to unload our anxieties on him because he, matter-of-factly, absolutely, certainly cares for us. So that's what we're going to see under these two headings. The first is, is what Peter describes as a mighty hand. So look, we'll read both of these verses and return back to the first. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Here's the command. It's a command to sufferers. It's a command to uncertain pilgrims like us. Humble yourselves. Imperative command. Do this. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Command to sufferers and uncertain pilgrims is humility. It's trust. It's make yourself low before this God. But I want you to see how he describes God, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under what? Under the mighty hand of God. Peter is, is picking up language here. That's a reflection of God's power demonstrated in the Exodus. If you've read recently in your trip through the scriptures or just can, can bear to memory, this is an idea that's repeated throughout Exodus and, and Deuteronomy especially, that it's the Lord's mighty hand that saves his people, that it's the Lord's mighty hand that acts on behalf of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 or has any God ever attempted to go and to take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? You might remember that in company with it. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Peter is drawing our attention back to the Exodus to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt in a seemingly hopeless situation in which they are being murdered as the firstborns are being extinguished and eliminated. And he says, hey, hey, sufferers, hey, pilgrims, do you remember what God did back then? Do you remember how he heard the cry of the Israelites and how he acted? how he stretched out his arm and he exercised the power of his, his mighty hand. Peter wants us to see that the same God that brought his people out of bondage in, in slavery in Egypt by plagues and by the Red Sea, that same God is ready to show that same power and might in your life. And that the door into the delight of that power and might is a, is a narrow, low door of humility. How do I get into that power? Peter says, humble yourselves under this mighty hand of God. Submit yourself and trust the one who you know has the power to deliver and save and change your circumstances and put you in a different place. Submit yourself to him, to this mighty hand. The Spirit's prescription for suffering and anxiety isn't that we would ask and then be granted all of the answers. You see that? He doesn't say, well, then just ask God the reason for your suffering and he's going to tell you. <laughs> ask God to, to, to solve the causes of your anxiety and I promise he's going to fix it. 
Peter says, submit yourselves. Put yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that call to humility is not a promise that things are going to work out then for your immediate relief and suffering. Peter is not promising. If you'll submit yourself, then your body will be healed. The signs and symptoms of this stroke will be gone. So submit yourself to God's mighty hand and trust him. He's not promising immediate relief. He's not saying the persecution that his audience is experiencing is going to cease. What is he saying? He says God is powerful. And we'll see in a minute, God is is good. So the prescription here for anxiety isn't that we would just get all the answers, but that we would trust that the mighty hand of God will do what? Look back at the text. So that at the proper time, when is that, Peter? I don't know. (laughs) When is that, Jesus? I'm not going to tell you. At the proper time, he may exalt you. He may lift you up. He may bear you up. He may sustain and lift you. The Spirit's prescription for suffering and anxiety is that we would trust that the mighty hand of God will bear us up at at the proper time. This humble dependence, this idea that we can really, actually, truly, completely, and totally trust God when everything's going to junk and falling apart and we don't understand why, whether it's um, job, finances, health, right? Whatever it is, this humble dependence It's easier under a mighty hand, right? It's easier under an Exodus-causing hand. That's where Peter's taking our imaginations back to the Exodus. It's easier under that hand because our gut reaction too often is a subtle independence that doesn't submit because we don't believe that God can or will act. We may know he's powerful, but we think he's uninterested. Or we may know that he loves us, but we think our our problems are, are too powerful to deal with. But the beauty of this invitation to humble trust is that it shows both the power and the love of God. This mighty hand will bear us up. The same mighty hand that held back the water of the Red Sea for his people to walk through on dry ground is the mighty hand that welcomes us to come and cast all our cares on him. Why? Because this mighty hand has mighty care. Look at this. Second part in verse seven. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Here's what this humility looks like. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We've all got a mug with this verse. We've all got a t-shirt or seen a meme or seen something subtle and moving, but I want you to think for a second about this familiar passage and all that's in play here. In view are at least two things. The first one is my heart. And my heart is worried. My heart is fickle. My heart is self-preoccupied. My heart is self-protective. I am anxious. And the second actor or character here, the second one in view here is God. And so the invitation comes, anxieties on him, on God. 
The one that he's just said has a, has a mighty hand that will bear you up, that will lift you up at the right time. This is the one that hears you, that welcomes you, that says, come, like, give me all of your junk. Give me all of your anxiety. Give me all of your worries. Give me all of your frustrations and stuff. And so my fickle, self-protective, self-preoccupied, worried heart meets God, who is, to say it simply, strong, able, and present. My heart meets the God who is strong and able and present. But I want you to focus in on the connection. Why can I find peace under his mighty hand? Why isn't my first reaction in reading about God's mighty hand to hear it kind of as a threat and go, hang on, I know that I've sinned against him. I, I, I know that I've done what he doesn't want me to do. So his mighty hand doesn't always sound like really good news. It sounds like a threat. But you see it in the little phrase here. It's a gospel phrase. My heart can find peace under his mighty hand because he cares for me. One of the worst lies of the accuser that our heart tends to believe is that God can't possibly care for someone who has done what I've done, who has been what I've been. He couldn't possibly still care for someone like me. He couldn't possibly have seen all of my life and still want me. And this is where the word of the gospel comes to the weary wondering heart and says, no, there's still mercy for you. God will not give you what you deserve because of the gospel of Jesus. He has not run out of grace because of the gospel of Jesus. He won't turn away because of the gospel of Jesus. He will welcome because of the gospel of Jesus. He will love because of the gospel of Jesus. He will persist towards you because of the gospel of Jesus. And so when this invitation comes, cast your cares on him, we see this through the lens of the gospel of Jesus, that his mighty hand is not a threat. It's the mighty hand of a father that says, I'm here for you. Let me know what you need. I'm here for you. Bring me your worries. I'm here for you. Be dependent on me. I care for you. We cast our anxieties on him, our burdens we give to him because he is unlimited in care for us because of the gospel of Jesus. He is without end inviting our anxieties into his mighty hands. But it's right for us to stop and to appreciate that for a second. Whether we've been a Christian for a long time or we're not sure if we're a Christian. It's right for us to pause and to realize that we are not just naturally right with this holy God. And yet we see his care and love for us in doing for us what we cannot do, in calling us to be his sons and daughters by grace through faith, that we would look to Jesus and find our redeemer and our salvation. There's two texts in Titus I wanna give you. The first, you can just listen to, write these down, you can read them later. But the first is Titus chapter two, verse 14. It says that Jesus gave himself, and I'm reading the verse here out of the ESV. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You hear the two things that the Spirit says that Jesus does? He died, what? To redeem you and to purify you, to release you from sin's bondage and to cleanse you with his righteousness and atonement. Do you know what that means? 
that Jesus died to, to redeem you and to cleanse you. Do you know what that means? It means that he doesn't expect you to be perfect to come to him. You see that? It, it means that you don't have to have your life in order before you follow Jesus. It means that you turn to him from all of your sin and rebellion. And guess what? He doesn't hand you a towel to wash your own feet. What does he do? He cleans you. He washes you. By the power of his cleansing blood and his atonement, he says, I will make you new. And so as we think about the gospel and we think about our place in God, we think about this idea that we can trust him in all circumstances. We are coming to the one who has provided for us our redemption and our cleansing. And who doesn't say, come to me and clean yourself up. But the one who the Spirit says, I will take you. Later in Titus, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you hear that resume of us outside of Jesus, right? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to sin. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how the invitation from God to bring our anxiety to him comes as an invitation from the one who has redeemed and cleansed you, the one who knows all your stuff, the one who's not surprised at your sin, but who invites you nonetheless to turn from your sin and to be found alive in him. And that's a life that doesn't just need to happen once as we repent and believe the gospel for the first time. That is every step of every day of us opening our hands and saying, okay, cast my anxiety on him because he cares for me. How does he care for me? He's redeemed me. He's purified me. He's made me new. I can absolutely and certainly and fully trust that he really does love me. Therefore, I can go to him. I want you to remember Jesus Christ isn't tired of your anxiety. He's not tired of you. He's not wishing that you just get over this fear and worry. What does he do? He calls us, come and give them to me. And he's not tired of us coming. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, you were worried about this yesterday. Fool, just get over this and stop dealing with this. No, he says, like, really come. Cast your anxiety on me. Why? Because I care for you. He calls us to come and hand them over. And there's a big difference. We are not called to handle our problems on our own. We're called to humbly trust and hand our problems over to his mighty hand. And you've lived long enough to know that that isn't something you're going to do on Sunday and be done for the week. That isn't something you're going to do at 11 o'clock on Sunday and be done for the rest of the day, right? That is an ongoing understanding that God loves me and cares for me. And as the onslaught of worry and fallen world junk comes at me, as I hear the news of a, of a, a friend's health crisis, right, that, that comes at me, that is me actively saying God loves me and he welcomes me to come and say, Lord, help. Lord, I'm anxious. Lord, 
give this to you. I need you to help. And we get that invitation because he cares for us. So I want you to remember that this week. On Tuesday morning, he cares for you. At lunch on Tuesday, he still, still cares for you. By 3 p.m., you know what? He still cares for you. At the end of the day, when you're putting your head on your pillow, he still cares for you. And it's not because you did really well that day. But it's because Jesus, in all of his perfections, as we look to him in faith, it's because he stands for us. He welcomes us. This is news that's true when the sun is shining and when everything is happy and when we don't know that many reasons for anxiety. And this is news that's just as true when the storms have blown in and they won't stop beating against you. It's true in ease and it's true in suffering. And that's why the Spirit can say in in another spot in the Scriptures in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings. So here, there's an idea that our suffering and the anxiety that produces, we give to God. I think Paul kind of ups the ante in Romans 5 when he says, rejoice in your sufferings. Be glad in your hardship. Why? Chapter 5, verse 3 says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so in the face of anxiety and in the face of suffering, we rejoice because we have confident hope in God's love. We have hope in a text like 1 Peter 5. He is mighty. He cares for us. He welcomes us. And so the step of faith for all of us now and for the rest of this week and Lord willing for the rest of our lives is to continue stepping in faith, saying, okay, God, you're... You're mighty, and I trust you. I'm handing this to you in faith. And I know that you are with me, and I'm not just doing that on Sunday, but I'm doing that as I continue on. And the step of humility is a step that says, I'm completely dependent. And it's an ongoing work because we are continually recognizing I need the peace in my heart that, that, that comes from being dependent on everything outside of me and not handling everything on my own, but handing it over to this mighty hand. We see this invitation pictured in the Lord's Supper that we get to celebrate as we respond to the word this morning. It's a picture of us going and taking hold of something that we don't deserve, going and receiving from the Lord his broken body and his shed blood. And so as we believe the gospel this morning, as we trust in the risen Christ together, then we make our way to the table as as Chris plays and we pick up those elements and we're picking up what we believe to represent Jesus's body that he broke to atone for my sin. His shed blood that he poured out to cleanse me and to cover me. And so in faith, we take and receive these elements knowing that God receives us not because of who we are, what our name is, how well we've done, how well we've performed, but because by faith we are taking hold of and looking to Jesus. And we are casting ourselves and all of us on him because he cares for us. Father in heaven.